Connor Beaton, and this is The Man Talk Show, training for men and answers for women. On today's show, I have a special guest. Um, I've been following his work for a little bit, a little while, and um, he recently wrote an article called The uh, Coronation, Coronation, and he dove into some of the complexities and intricacies of the coronavirus and what it means for our, our system and our society right now. So joining me today is uh, Charles Eisenstein, and um, he is a public speaker, a gift economy advocate, and the author of several books, including The, Ain't, uh, the, the Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, which is an incredible book if you, if you are looking for something to read, uh, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, and climate, a new story. So he was born in 1967, graduated from Yale University in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy. He's lived in Taiwan where he worked as a translator. Uh, He's married, has kids, and uh, he later returned to the United States. And he currently lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so he's, he frequently travels to speak and share his work at conferences and other events. Um, he has done an, an incredible amount of, of writing and, and public speaking on various topics. Um, but today we are going to dive into the idea of normal and how a lot of what's happening right now, societally, we we're, we're really going to take a deep dive into the impacts of the coronavirus and what it means for our culture and our society and how uh, our perception of normal is not only being eroded, but our perception of, of what is true uh, is sort of under attack in some ways. And so uh, Charles gives a, a really, some, some really profound insight and wisdom into some of the systems that are in place when it comes to us understanding our own role in society, uh, how how we perceive normal to be, what that means, what it means that it's starting to break down right now within our culture. Uh, and then we talk about the coronavirus and some of the misconceptions. So this is a really uh, fun episode. Uh, I feel like I could talk to him for hours on end, but uh, I'm going to have him back on the show. We, as soon as we got offline, we talked about having him back on the show. So he will be back on the show in the next couple months. Um, but uh, yeah, before I bring him on, just a quick Quick reminder, uh, gents, uh, for the men that are out there, uh, the Alliance is open still. It's free for the for the next couple months. So if you are wanting to join, please do so. Um, we are just breaking everyone up into teams. So you'll have access to a weekly call with me where we dive into some really great topics and get some support, um, help you face uh, whatever challenges you're facing in your life right now. Um, but we also have monthly challenges um, that are fitness-based, finance-based, family-based, mindset-based. Uh, right now, we are doing no porn for 30 days, and we're doing 50 burpees a day with five five minutes of meditation. Um, and you also have a group that you can connect with on a biweekly basis and uh, be held accountable to what you're working on in your life. So if you're wanting to get some support, if you're wanting to connect with an online men's group, uh, definitely head on over and check out The Alliance. It's on connorbeaton.com or mantalks.com under the work with me section. So there's that. And just a quick reminder for all the couples that are out there, if you're at home and you're looking for something to do to develop and uh, deepen your relationship, then uh, you can check out the relationship course that Vienna and I did. It's, uh, It's live right now. We have couple hundred people going through it. So if you're looking for a group of people to go through a program together, then you can check out Get the Love You Want. Uh, We cover all of the foundational principles of a healthy relationship. So with all that said, with that housekeeping out of the way, um, please welcome Charles 
Eisenstein. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Connor. Yeah, I've been I've actually been following your work for a while. And then, you know, I saw this uh, Corona Nation article come up and it's, you know, it's been circulated quite widely. And and uh, it was really great to see that sort of kick off in the way that it did. Um, so it's an honor to have you on the show. And I'm excited to talk about a bunch of different things. But before we dive into the sort of meat and potatoes of everything, I, I have to ask you the question I ask everyone, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. What came to mind was it happened when I was in my late 20s, maybe even mid 20s, 26, 27, something like that. I was in Taiwan working as a translator and writer and, you know, doing whatever paid, paid well, uh, consulting with corporations on their marketing and things like that. And I was in this meeting, their branding of something and Everybody was really avid and eager to make their points and arguing about the best strategy and naming the features of the product and everything. And I had this, this moment of, of, of almost panic, you know, where, where I was like, hold on a second. You guys actually care about this? Because I don't care about it. <laughs> I could care less what your market share is. I'm only caring about it because you're paying me to care about it. And I felt a little superior when I had that thought. But the panic then was, was, is that all? Is that what life is? That I'm going through one thing after another after another that I'm paid to care about? What about caring about something for real? What about living my life, not the life I'm paid to live? That was uh, a frightening thought that I might never live my life. And I can't say that I changed overnight because of that, but it really took the wind out of my sails uh, from this career that I had been doing quite well at. Probably if I hadn't had that moment, I wouldn't be here today doing this. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting and you know, I kind of find it fascinating because I feel like sometimes we have those, <laughs> some people, you know, after doing these interviews, I mean, hundreds of interviews, some people have these very internal moments like what you're describing where it's like oh my gosh am I going to live out my days not really pursuing what's important to me and what really matters most and then other people sort of get sideswiped by life you know and that that comes along and and sort of pulls a rug out from underneath them and everything that they knew to be normal and sound and solid and what they were working towards is radically shifts and I feel like in some ways we're like collectively we're, we're somewhat experiencing that right now. And um, it, do you feel like those are sort of the two modalities in which people start to move closer towards what, what is most authentic for them? What's most aligned for them in terms of quote unquote purpose? I guess so. Uh, yeah. I mean, in my life, sometimes it does seem that, that if there's a change that I'm unable to make myself, then it, is granted to me. Mm. I even had this, like last December, I was at a conference and, you know, those were in the days when we still had conferences. <laughs> and I was, you know how sometimes you meet somebody and you have like a really deep heart to heart conversation with a total stranger that was happening. And I was saying like, I'm like, I feel like I'm really in a rut. You know, I've really hit a glass ceiling. Like uh, I'm stuck in my habits and, and I wish 
and I, and I know, like, I even know what kind of change I should make, but I can't do it. I just can't. I, w- I want something to come in and do it for me. That, I actually said that out loud. <laughs> you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. Because so, now, like, I mean, I was, you know, my, my plan this year was to really shift gears and have kind of a sabbatical. So I was turning down speaking invitations, you know, like, like saying no to conferences and things like that, like really trying to preserve some space, but it was starting to get encroached on because someone would invite me out. Oh, this one's really good. You know, or that's really interesting. I'm going to do this one. And I was starting to like my, my, my uh, open space was, was shrinking and eroding. And then, and now everything's canceled. And I'm really like many other people experiencing this kind of, um, this clearing of the have tos clearing of the of at least some of the compulsions and being gifted this expanse of time that and it's not that you know i'm totally free to do whatever i want but the constraints are different than they used to be Mm -hmm. and that does offer an exercise of free choice that uh it's such a gift. And maybe if we recognize it as a gift, we won't be binge watching, um, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever. Um, but but we'll actually like take this, take this gift, receive this gift. Hmm. Yeah. I, lo- I love, I love what you're saying there. Cause I think in, in many ways I have seen and spoken to some friends and family members and, there's sort of this looming guilt over top of them if they feel okay, you know, in this moment, if they're sort of experiencing a sense of relief, you know, about having their, as you said, have-tos or uh, forced upons uh, sort of released from them and they're able to just <laughs> find grounding a little bit, you know, and and, and not sort of be caught in the, in the normal wave that they would be caught in. Um, so what do you, what would you say to people that are sort of feeling that guilt right now or can, you know, sort of over consuming as a means of distraction, just to fill the void in space? Because I think from just based on reading all, you know, some of your material, I get the sense that you, and I could be wrong on this, but I get the sense that you have, have sort of are saying, Hey, now is a time now is not the time, but it's a time for us to really make some form of individual and collective change. Okay. Yeah. So guilt is a response to certain kinds of information that might not register or might not provoke guilt in another person, but when certain kinds of information are filtered through a story about responsibility and things, then guilt is the result. So the information, some of the information coming in, is is that you know not everybody is just fine uh at home here uh but there are people who are really suffering from the lockdown like they've lost their jobs uh or they're they're sick uh or um like there are people who are suffering in in really tangible ways uh homeless you know people in prisons like like people in, in slums and so this so the, the, I think guilt rises from a, 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 feel, a disconnect from what we know and how we are, how we are being. 
And that if these uh, data points about, say, the suffering in the world are held out or tuned out, then we, we don't feel guilty. Then there's also the disconnect between um, how I am being and what's true about life and who I want to be and why am I here. That can also be muted with entertainment or by focusing on uh, the rewards that society offers you for not living your purpose. Mm. And, 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 and so when those get swept aside, whether you're talking about the disconnect between how you are and the way the world is or how you are and how you're meant to be, then one result could be guilt. That's, that's the feeling of new information or it can be the feeling of new information coming in. So I would say, you know, if you ask like what I would say to somebody who's feeling guilty about binge watching Netflix or something like that, I would, I would say, go into that feeling mm. and, and really ask not see, because the perversion of guilt is a, um, a struggle against yourself because guilt suggests that you're bad. So in order to allow some uh, self-love, one response is to actually make an enemy of yourself, divide yourself and align with the good part and go to war against the bad part. And then you're redeemed. That actually doesn't work because it ends up actually, um, it, it results usually in denial. Hmm. and excuse making and stuff like you have to find some reason to love yourself again. Yeah. So another yeah. way is just to sit with that, you know? Yeah. I am watching Netflix all the time and what, and who I really am. See, that's, that's the other thing. You have to also have some access to a truth about who you are hmm. and why you're here and hmm. simply to feel the presence of that truth to, to attend to that truth sets changes in motion that don't depend on winning an internal battle. Hmm. Yeah. And I have no idea if this is like even appropriate for this podcast, but no, no, it's there great. It is. Yeah. It's no, it's really, it's really good. I, <laughs> I like what you're, I like what you're saying because in some ways, like I, what you're saying uh, resonates with me and with a lot of the people that, that I've worked with over the years in the sense that I, you know, I think we have created this, this culture where, our, our, one of our greatest addictions is avoidance. You know, we are just addicted to any sort of avoidance mechanism and, and anything that will sort of move us away from, especially hard emotions, right? It's, it's sort of like this, we're not neurologically wired to want to go into those hard emotions generally. And so when we feel them come up, we are very prone to sort of move towards this space of wanting to find something to distract us, to avoid the, the hard things, the hard conversation, the hard emotion, the, uh, the hard experience, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I, I like what you're saying, because you're saying, you know, go, go into it, go further into it. And so it's understand the foundation of why that emotion is there in the first place, why that experience is actually happening within you. Is mm -hmm. that, is that accurate? Yeah. Another thing that's coming when you talk about, we're not wired to really want to feel those hard emotions. <sighs> Maybe we need help feeling them. Hmm. Maybe they are able to be felt more easily in community, 
if someone's there for you to, to hold you in those emotions, to love you through those emotions, normally like grief, for example, was always uh, expressed in, in community. Mm-hmm. Not, it wasn't like this personal thing where you go cry on your pillow, you know, um, it was public. Grief was public. And maybe all, all of these hard emotions, they need some kind of um, open, like social reception uh, to be witnessed, you know? So it's like to, to make it into this thing that we're not doing right, um, that may be a, a, a trick. <laughs> a trick that that uh, lobbies us to see ourselves as a failure mm. when it's really not that we're not doing it right. It's that we don't have what we need to do it. Yeah. Right. Well, we've, we've altered our social structures that normally or used to be in certain cultures and certain points of history, they were containers for our emotional experiences, right? So rather than sort of sweeping them away under the rug or into the closet uh, you know, as as we have in in sort of more modern times, those emotions, like you're saying, they were witnessed by other people, and so there was less shame around them. Right? Shame is such right. a su- suppressive emotion. Sometimes, not all the time, but most of the time, it's a very suppressive emotion. And so, you know, we when we put things out of the way, we we generally tend to impose a sense of shame on them. So, and I I I like what you're saying, and I don't want to get too far off topic because I I want to dive into the Corona Nation. I want to talk about, you know, I I had started writing this this article um, probably about several months back called "The Death of Normal," and and it was really sort of an extension of how our times are, are sort of coming to this place where we can't we can't collectively identify a sense of a sense of normalcy. And when I read your article, I, I think it started off sort of identifying or pointing to the fact that that normal has come un, unhinged in some way, right? Our, our sense of normalcy individually and collectively and societally has, has somewhat uh, separated. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can just talk a little bit more about our relationship with normalcy and why these current circumstances that we find ourselves in with the coronavirus and you know, some of the rising in conspiracy theory obsession and, you know, some of these other pieces that, that uh, create uncertainty, why you feel like it's happening right now and, and how does normalcy, how does normal play a role within our, our culture and our society? And I'm asking some substantially large questions all yeah. at once. So I'll let, I'll let you sort of parse them apart. Yeah. So when normal is uh, being challenged, there's different ways to respond. One way is to cling all the more tightly to it, to look for somebody to say uh, everything's okay, or at least someone to say, here's what to do about it. Or someone, and, and, and that we know what to do. We've got this. Or for somebody to say, actually, they're all wrong. Here's what is happening. It's like to, to, to go to some uh, source of meaning, uh, somebody who can offer sense to, the, to, to you in these confusing circumstances. Because to step into the unknown is really uncomfortable. 
especially in a society like ours that is so fixated on control in all its forms, politically, socially, uh, technologically, and even internally, you know, that, or parentally, you know, like we have so many institutions of control and on a, on a philosophical level, human progress has been seen in civilization as a matter of improving our ability to control the world around us. Hmm. That's what technology does. That's what agriculture has been doing. You know, you, you, you decide what plants are going to grow. And if you can do that, you're going to have more food or more reliable food. Uh, You decide where the wind will blow. You decide where the rain will come. You know, that that's like these, these futuristic dreams of weather control are saying, if only we could um, extend our control to yet new realms, to, to, to the weather, to brain chemistry, to the genes, you know, to mm. the very atoms of, of matter through nanotechnology, like then we would have, an, it would be awesome. You know, we'd have a perfect <laughs> society then. So this is a really deep thread in civilization. And, and, and that makes the breakdown of normal all the more scary because it is it is a step into uncertainty and we're afraid of uncertainty and that's to some degree that's natural it's it's um really of a, a a more general form of fear of death because fear of death is the ultimate uncertainty i mean death is the ultimate uncertainty hmm. so yeah so we we you know many people are just grasping for some way to make meaning to make sense out of what's happening. And that desire for a coherent story uh, overcomes critical thinking. So if you latch on to one of these stories, like, you know, like the ones that are called conspiracy theories, where it's, it's a maybe genetically engineered virus to create conditions where the public will acquiesce to totalitarian control and they've been planning this for a long time. And, and like, you know, then you read the news. Well, at first you're going to start reading sites that are promulgating this narrative. And every time you see an item that fits it, you'll be like, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> and something that doesn't fit the narrative, you'd be like, oh, you know, that's propaganda. Like, you, you, you know, critical thinking takes second place to this desire for reassurance, this desire to, to know, to make sense of the world. And I think that it's not, see, the thing is, it's not only the so-called conspiracy theories that are doing this, it's the mainstream too, that keeps out inconvenient data points of which there are many. I, I don't actually think that there's a conscious conspiracy happening uh, simply because uh, to quote Bertrand Russell, you know, it doesn't, conspiracy theories don't leave enough room for ordinary human folly. <laughs> and they, they give too much credit to the conspirators, you know, like mm. these highly disciplined, super competent, you know, like they're almost superhuman, you know, but that doesn't mean that I think that the mainstream narrative holds water either. There's, and I don't, I don't know if you want me to go into like some of the cracks in its, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think I do, because I think, you know, one of the things that I what that I loved about the the article is that, you know, you, you did a really good job of sort of taking a very neutral approach of just being able to flesh out some of the 
main overarching pieces, but I would, I would love <clears throat> to sort of get into the nuances of how our sense of normalcy is being eroded uh, from a societal standpoint and, and what some of those cracks are, you know, in, in terms of what you're talking about um, when it comes to the conspiracy theories versus mainstream media um, and, and the, and the stories and the, uh, the realities that they're sort of portraying, right? Because I think one of the things that, that we're starting to see is that intersubjective reality is becoming a much more prominent form of control, right? It's like one of our, one of our current forms of how we try and manipulate people is by manipulating the, the collective stories that we are getting people to buy into and, and adhere to. And I think Yuval Harari, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, in uh, Homo Deus talked about that. He talked about how, the, you know, it's not our subjective realities or objective realities that will necessarily be controlled, but our intersubjective realities that will become the things that are, are much more malleable and manip manipulatable. Yeah. What, what people believe is, um, has, has, a, has a less powerful impact on reality than what people believe that people believe. Hmm. So if you can create the perception that everybody believes something, even if they don't actually believe it, it looks like they believe it. And so you're like, wow, who am I to disagree with that? <laughs> that's what the mass media does. And that's what it happens when, if everybody's wearing masks, mm. you know, and, and you're like, gosh, I really don't think I need to wear a mask. And didn't, didn't I read some doctor saying that it is useless unless you're actually coughing to wear one and, but, everyone is wearing them, you know? And if I don't wear them, what, wear one, what are they going to think? And could I be wrong? Because everybody else must think it's important. So how, why, why, who am I to think that I'm right and everybody else is wrong? The thing is, every single person could be thinking the same thing. And this is how reality is engineered um, by those with the means to do so. And that's why we hear so much about the importance of controlling the narrative, you know, or the talking points and things like that. Um, and you, in a way, you have to be kind of arrogant to fight that tide. You have to, you have to say, you have to be trusting something else than what everybody else thinks. And humans evolved toward, you know, we evolved, evolved uh, for social harmony. There's a lot of psychological experience, experiments that demonstrate this, that, you know, you, you, um, in, in the interest of maintaining harmony, why not pretend to believe something that you don't actually believe? If it makes everybody happy, if it keeps you in the in-group, um, you know, op opinions and beliefs become a kind of a display, a social display that, uh, or even a form of submission to the group hmm. and normally that might be fine except when that is hijacked in order to uh, serve say a fascist agenda or a totalitarian agenda then this human tendency can be really dangerous and and it can also be really dangerous when the collective belief is at odds with reality and then you actually need the narcissists and the psychopaths, you know, and the, the, or whatever, the dissidents, the people who are arrogant enough to believe differently from the group, because hmm. they can say, Hey, guess what guys, the emperor has no clothes. 
And then everybody else who was kind of secretly thinking, oh, you know, that emperor looks like he doesn't have any clothes, but everybody else seems to think he does. So I better keep my mouth shut. You know, there are certain moments in evolution where that kind of personality is really important. Mm -hmm. Maybe now is one of those moments. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I was just reading. um, It's so hard to, to know. Like I was reading this interview with this Minnesota state senator who's an, who's a doctor and he's like, hey, guess what? We're, we're over-reporting COVID deaths uh, and COVID cases because um, Medicare pays a hospital $13,000 for each COVID patient. So there's this financial incentive to mark them down as COVID. And if they go on a ventilator, $39,000. And now, like, in this article, it was saying hospitals are now going and, like, back, like, um, retroactively classifying people as COVID patients. And, and if they die, they can be marked as COVID, even if they've never been tested. Uh, or, and then there's the question of the false positives or, and the question of, did you die of COVID or with COVID? Mm-hmm. And some of these people that they're, that they're retroactively marking as COVID, they were like 90 year or a hundred years old. Yeah. You know, so, so there's this, um, and it's not like necessarily that any, you know, evil, conspirators were sitting there, we're going to make it look like a a pandemic so that we can exercise our, our totalitarian evil plans. You know, it's just (laughs) like, there's a systemic tilt toward that. Yeah. And things just work out that way as if they were, there were a conspiracy. Hmm. Then like, here's another, another thing, this, this, um, the, the till I, in the article, I called it the tilt of civilization that predisposes us in any crisis situation to try to identify a culprit, Mm. a bad guy, a perpetrator, because then we know what to do. There's something to fight. It's just like fighting guilt, you know, fighting the bad part of yourself. We we know what to do if there's a virus. We know what to do if there's uh, a terrorist. If our democracy doesn't seem to be working very well, that's a pretty uncomfortable examination, a pretty uncomfortable self-examination to go through, much more convenient to blame it on Vladimir Putin. Now there's an external thing causing the problem. So so whether or not this COVID pandemic is as serious as we've been told, I just read an article in The Economist uh, that's saying actually the death rate is probably 0.1%. The, the fatality rate, which is pretty much the same as flu. And then I looked at the NIH. I think it was the NIH that has like um, week by week uh, flu and pneumonia deaths, which would cover COVID because when, you know, it's, it's pneumonia and they are high this year, uh, almost as high as 2018. Hmm. So it's not so like, yeah, there are a lot of people getting sick, pretty bad year for the you know kind of things that that like pneumonia but it's not worse than two or three years ago Hmm. so anyway so but do i actually know that do i actually know that do i actually go check that medicare is paying thirteen thousand dollars i just took this guy's word for it why did i take his word for it because i'm constitutionally suspicious of (laughs) official narratives because i have oppositional defiant disorder (laughs) <laughs> which is my favorite oh. disease. So, like, and now you're listening to me 
Yeah. And and like anyone listening, like do you, when you hear me say these things, are you like, I knew it. I knew there was something wrong with the narrative, but are you going to fact check me? Fact, Or you might be like, oh boy, this guy sounds like, like he must be a Trump supporter. You know, he's only saying that because he wants to, to uh, make excuses for Trump taking slow action. Hmm. So like this predisposition is going to make you either very uh, tolerant and accepting of my viewpoint or very hostile to it. And if you're hostile to it, you're going to really go in there and scrutinize my information. And if you're, if you're, if you welcome it, you're not going to scrutinize it. You're going to take my word for it that yeah. the state Senator said what he said and that Medicare is paying $13,000 for hospitals. And, uh, you know, I, I think pretty much everybody does this. And that's why the breakdown of meaning can be such a potent initiation because if we can move past this scramble to make, to fit it into the world that we already knew, to fit it into our pre-existing knowledge structure, if we can let go of that, then new information can come in. And then we have the possibility of not going back to normal when this is all over, but to go to a new normal. Because do we really want to go back to normal? You know, was everything just hunky-dory before COVID-19 hit? Yeah, right. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah. And this is good. This is like that conversation I told you about at the conference, you know, something's happening to help us. It's not going to rescue us from the trajectory that we were on. In fact, the responses are all pretty much doubling down on the trajectory that we were on. Social distancing, that's been happening for years, progressively. Life moving online, the destruction of small businesses, a concentration of wealth, which is happening in this, uh, obsessive hygiene, which a few years ago I re read an article, is excessive hygiene making us sick, like um, totalitarian control, uh, surveillance, you know, the police state, like all these things, these are longstanding trends and they're intensifying um, because we have not let go of the deep story of what the world is and how to respond to it. But so, so COVID isn't going to save us from the path that we were on. It could accelerate us down that path. Yet it is offering us an opportunity to choose that we hadn't really been aware of before. I mean, theoretically, you can always choose. But usually, at least for me, there has to be one of those moments you talked about earlier when you get either slammed by reality or some something breaks inside of you that does not mean that from then on you stop drinking or stop doing business translation but it makes you aware of an uncomfortable choice that you have been making it, it brings up maybe this guilt that who i'm being is not aligned with who i really am it's not really aligned with this new information i've gotten about the world so here's a choice point and that is the initiation that I wrote about in the essay, the coronation, yeah. initiating us into sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, man, there's, there's so many good things that you just <laughs> laid out there. Um, and, and two of them that I, that I pulled out that I think are, are really important that again, I, I noticed in the, in the article and, and just in your work in general is this idea of how we relate to the world, right. And our sort of, 
desire, our internal desire to try and control the world around us rather than learning from the environment and the, the sort of natural unfolding that has led to our existence. So that's that's on, on one side. And then the other side is is the move towards more totalitarian control. And I think historically, chronologically, when we look at the evolution of, of our cultures and societies, it's in the heightened moments of chaos where people have garnered more power and, and power has sort of moved up the ladder to the to the few and out of the hands of the many. And I and I have you know, I, I've seen this starting to unfold now. And I think you, you started to get into that in the article in terms of, you know, not necessarily some of the legislation that they're trying to pass, but some of the ways in which governments are using this as an opportunity to sort of have a power grab, you know, and and infringe on civil liberties, infringe on privacies. So can you just speak to that? And I think we'll probably go down that path a little bit more, but I would love for you to just unpack that a little bit in your perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to say at the outset that control isn't a bad thing. Yeah. There are certainly circumstances to exert control. There are circumstances to fight. There are circumstances to run away, uh, to protect yourself. Uh, what is dangerous is the habit of control that is based on a certain way of seeing the world that's not actually accurate. Hmm. Control is pretty much the only way to engage the world if you see it as uh, composed of random forces without intelligence or purpose or consciousness of their own, populated by competing selves, competing individuals, other separate selves, whose well-being is not fundamentally connected to yours but they're competing with you in a a finite universe. So if you're going to be okay, then then I'm not going to be okay because you're going to use up more. You're going to use more than, you're going to take some of my share. Uh, So I better be strong and preempt you doing that. Maybe I can take some first. Then there's the viruses and the bacteria and the, the, you know, everybody out there. So, so, control, like the impulse toward control is baked into the cake. And when you buy into that worldview and you are the one administering society, then of course, the more power you have to control people, the better the world is going to be because you can order things. It's like the, the scientist or the, or the engineer, the more powerful his machines, the more he can make the world good the more you can control natural forces and control your brain chemistry and control, you know, if you're, if you're administering society and someone says, well, you're invading civil liberties, you know, who are you to tell me where I'm authorized to be and who I'm authorized to be with? You'll be like, you don't understand. It's for your own good. Mm. I'm not going to prevent you from doing good things, only dangerous things. And what will I prevent you from doing? And right now it's dangerous to, gather. I mean, first they banned gatherings of 500 or more people, then it was 50 or more people. And now in a lot of states and countries, it's three or more people. And of course, that's just temporary, right? Or is it? The rationale to do that may not be temporary. What if they say, well, this, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, and there could be another one. And the rationale, that's the basic rationale is is do as we say, because you'll be safer. 
and other people will be safer. So at bottom, there is a value that's being placed on safety and risk minimization, we could call it, rather than other values. The value of, like, what's the value of a hug? What's the value of a party? What's the value of a concert? What's the value of, of a wedding? From the calculus of longevity, safety, not much value. It's hard to calculate how weddings are good for your health. So here, we, this whole system is elevating risk minimization to a, a holy status. Mm -hmm. And now, I do happen to think that staying alive is important. Uh, you know, I do want to stay alive. Would I sacrifice anything to increase my chances of living to 100 years old? No. Life is not about just surviving. This is that realization I had in, in that story I told you right at the beginning. Um, I'm here for something. I'm not just here to get paid a lot. That's not satisfying. Even if, and so when I quit the career I had, it was a step into uncertainty and risk. You know, like, what am I going to do without this income? How am I, you know, I have a new child, you know, like at the time. What am I going to do? So this is the kind of conversation about values that we need to have right now. Do we want to continue operating a society that places survival on the altar and denigrates fun, play, the exploring of boundaries, the challenging of limits, the qualitative parts of life? Ironically, I believe that even if we do value longevity above all, and this is what the, the medical system seems to value, you know, the worst outcome for a patient is death. So if you die right now, that's worse than if you live another month on a ventilator without any human contact and die alone. But what would you rather do? Would you rather have an extra month of, of misery? Because, you know, the most important thing is to stay alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and, but the irony here is that I'm pretty sure that it, a world without hugs and handshakes and weddings and gatherings and, and just physical interaction will actually make us even less healthy. Like it won't even achieve the goal that this, these forms of control hope to achieve because our health depends on sociality and on contact with the microbial world. Yeah. Because you know, the immune system needs these, these challenges and this genetic information that is constantly interacting with the immune system and your body ecology. Like that, the, we are not separate selves. We are collective. We are legion. We are community. And by now, everybody knows that we have 10 times more bacterial cells in our bodies than we have human cells. Mm -hmm. um, this is just one aspect of life thrives in community not in isolation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's sort of an over-indexing of qualities, you know, for lack of a better word, that are associated with the more yang, with the more yang aspects of life, right? The more, like, it's, we, we have a tendency to sort of over-index the rational mind, 
right? I think Einstein said the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, but we've created a culture that honors a servant and has forgotten the gift. And I think in many ways, what, what I hear you describing is almost in, in, in essence of that, that a lot of our structure, our structures are set up to sacrifice intuitive understanding, intuitive working, intuitive creation and intuitive connection for an overvaluation of rational linear constructs and and um, and ways of being and ways of moving through the world. I think what we're yeah uh, what what we're elevating especially are things that we can quantify. Yeah. So it's not so much qualities as quantities yeah. that our society tends to elevate because for one thing those are only well, in science, only that which you can quantify is even considered to be real. Like you cannot subject it to the scientific method if you can't garner data from it, if you can't quantify it. Uh, this is basic scientific philosophy going back to Galileo and, and Newton. Like the measurable is what's real. And in economics as well, the, something has value if it can be converted into dollars. Value in economics has no meaning outside of quantification. So we have a whole system geared toward elevating that which we can quantify, elevating GDP, for example, and, and ignoring or, or marginalizing what gets left out of those quantities. So we have, over my lifetime, we have a world with more and more stuff, more and more quantity, more and more money, but less and less intimacy, less and less play, less and less authenticity, less and less silence. Um, there's machines in the sky all the time, but not now. I mean, that's kind of nice, actually. Yeah. But, but you know, less of the less community, uh, less beauty, like more and more square feet of buildings, but, but fewer and fewer genuinely beautiful buildings. The only beautiful buildings by and large, are built before 1950. Compare Grand Central Station to Penn Station, and you get you understand what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, <laughs> and and so yeah, I mean, this is another example. Like, you can quantify longevity. You can quantify whether the patient died or not, but you cannot quantify whether the patient died well. I mean, maybe you could try to, um, and that might be a step forward, um, which would be coming from different values. I, I I love what you're saying. I wanted I wanted to kind of dovetail off of that and, and move into something. I, I feel like I could have a like two or three hour conversation with you about some of these pieces. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about is one is is misinformation and its usage because there seems to be a rise of leveraging misinformation and. And I think one of the interesting things that I'm starting to see right now is that people are having a tough time just identifying what's true or not. I mean, you know, we kind of have touched on this in, in this in this interview thus far. But how do you see misinformation being used and, and what what can people start to do in order to uh, in order to best not protect themselves, I guess, from from misinformation, but but start to sort of sift through it because it there seems to be a tremendous amount of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, what do you call misinformation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you only are able to do that if you know what's what's true. Yes. So 
like, here I am, say, representing the CDC. Here's reality. Anything that challenges that must be, by definition, misinformation. Mm. Or if you're if you adhere to some other narrative, say you think that the epidemic is being caused by 5G installation, then anything that contradicts that, you're going to say that that's misinformation. Well, what's what do you, are you are you able to go into that? Like, because I think this is one of the fascinating things that there's. You know, when you look at the 5G thing, I mean, that has gotten a tremendous amount of legs, for lack of a better word, yeah. right? There's a ton of people that are on it. And in in some, if you go down the rabbit hole a little bit, there's actually some very interesting information. So can you, can you speak to it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> here, let's do a little experiment. Uh, did you know that every place where there's been a major outbreak of COVID has been installing 5G? Yeah, I heard this. Did you know that, Connor? <laughs> I heard this one. I I did not. I mean, I did it, but I didn't know that. Is that true? I just said it. Is it actually true? People who know. are disposed to believe that narrative are not going to subject my claim to much scrutiny. Yeah. People who are not disposed to that narrative are going to say, well, that couldn't be true. They, they might not even scrutinize it directly. Then I say, well, that couldn't be true because if it were, the authorities would have they wouldn't be implementing 5G. They would have recognized this danger. Um, and and what about contagion? You know, and what if, certainly the entire scientific establishment couldn't be wrong. You know, so so people have a way of dismissing or of identifying misinformation simply that I don't agree with it, and I'm right. Therefore, it must be misinformation. When you let go of knowing that you're right, then. You, not, you need to find a new standard to judge incoming information by, not just does it, do I agree with it or not? So what is that new standard? I mean, that's called critical thinking. Yeah. So I looked into the 5G thing. And in fact, there are places where there's been outbreaks that did not have 5G. And there are places where um, 5G has been installed. Um, that didn't have COVID outbreaks. Like it doesn't actually match that well. And the dismissal of that, well, you know, 5G does not, does not generate any ionizing radiation, therefore it couldn't possibly harm your DNA. Like that is kind of a straw man argument because mm-hmm. those who are warning of the dangers of it, they're not saying that it's dangerous because it's, because it's, you know, shaking uh, electrons loose from your from your DNA. I mean, they're saying it interferes with the very subtle electromagnetic signaling of your body. And, and they're saying with COVID, they're saying that, that these um, uh, microwaves and millimeter waves, they are strongly absorbed by oxygen. And Mm -hmm. so they are splitting oxygen molecules into atomic oxygen and reducing the amount of bioavailable oxygen in, in the air that we breathe. Uh, there, and that explains why many COVID patients seem to be having altitude sickness. Their lungs are working fine, but they're not getting enough oxygen. And they have this whole, this whole explanation. So when I see people debunk 5G, they're not actually engaging that explanation. So what do I think? I mean, I'll say, I don't know, but I think that there's something to look at there. And it's not because I'm clamoring to find any excuse to doubt the authorities and tear down the 5G network. It's because I actually looked at some of these arguments. I'm like, you know, 
I haven't actually seen a satisfying response to this. Yeah. Do I actually know that it's doing that to oxygen molecules? That I actually, I didn't take that next step. So if I'm engaging somebody who's interested in that, I say, yeah, maybe that would be a next step to look at. And I'm curious what you come up with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think there's there's something quite powerful and, and potent about your approach, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is that, you know, in, in certain forms of Buddhism, they, they talk about the middle way, right? Not, not sort of clinging to one way or another as the way, but sort of being able to say, I'm, I'm going to uh, intake as much data and information as I can and, and observe from this place of for lack of a better word, non-attachment, right? And not saying that that this is the answer or that that's the answer. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things that you said there is, is, you know, coming from a place of, I'm not trying to take down some institution, right? I think that pre-built mission can sometimes uh, bias us, right? And obviously we have a lot of biases and it's very challenging to not, uh, to not operate from those biases. But I, I like the perspective of, in you know seeking information and seeking education and being the person that is sort of objectively or trying to objectively look at these issues um, from a place of, of curiosity and yeah. you know, one of the things that just to kind of tie in the loop here between normalcy and, and where we find ourselves right now it it seems to me that in in these cycles where normal starts to break down from a, a cultural and societal level that we see the rise in importance of the rebel archetype and that this rebel plays a very important part in our culture and society and i'm i'm wondering if if that's something that you've seen as well or or and, and if so can you speak to the importance of the rebel during times of of disarray and uh and the erosion of normalcy well, I mean, I spoke about it a little bit already with the emperor's new clothes, you know, um, meeting people when when the mass, when the majority is caught up in a mass delusion, then you need somebody who's, you know, a little crazy. I mean, what does crazy mean, except that you disagree with consensus reality? You're living in your own reality. But when consensus reality has gone off the rails, you need people like that. Yeah. And I think that if people become in general, more skeptical and don't believe what they're told just because they're being told it by the authorities that whose veracity is unquestionable because that's what it takes to hold the world together. Like if people were not so mesmerized by this collective uh, illusion, then, and, and really exercise their critical thinking, I think that the official narrative will disintegrate. I think that, mm. that it does have so many um, loose strands in it that, that in general, I think it'd be a really healthy thing for our society if people did not so unquestioningly believe what they've been told again and again and again, going back to, you know, weapons of mass destruction, uh, going, I mean, there's so many, we've been, as you know, the people, we've been lied to you don't have to, you know, be a fan of David Icke, although I do kind of admire the guy. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to like go into that conspiracy um, world to to see that we're lied to a lot. Yeah. And I'm curious, what is if if we put everything on the table that we've been told, 
what can we make out of those pieces? Some of the things that we're being told by authority are probably true. Maybe the story of this pandemic is one of those. Hmm. I'm, I'm not trying to persuade you that it's anything different than what the WHO or CDC has been telling us. I have strong doubts and I'm wary of how the official narrative dovetails so neatly with a totalitarian agenda and how it dovetails so neatly into these, these trends that have disturbed me my whole life of the, the shriveling of community and the migration of life to, to indoors and to online and the, the fear people have, like the, the, the shrinking of public spaces and public interaction and, and you know, children not being allowed to play outside yeah. with each other. That used to be a punishment. You weren't allowed to go outside. <laughs> yeah, so, so I am wary of where this is taking us. Not to mention like the mandatory medicalization of all citizens, the tracking, you know, like in some places they having, if you violate quarantine, you get an ankle bracelet. You know, they're talking about, in India, they're giving you invisible ink tattoos to mark whether you've been, and they're rounding people up in huge groups and, and dousing them, you know, fumigating them and like, like stuff that kind of seems like Nazi Germany. Yeah. But it's all for a good scientific reason. Well, anyway, uh, I no, can go I, on. But no, you, you you hit it, man. You you hit it, and I think, you know, I, I think that that's the that's the that's the really big piece that I think a lot of people are grappling with right now. You know, and I I agree with you 100. percent And and um, you know, I love I love your perspective because I think it's a it's a voice of reason in a moment of just undulating chaos, right? Just a lot of fear, a lot of panic a lot of broken down social agreements, a lot of people not knowing what direction to go. And so, you know, I think it's one of these, one of these situations where we do need to pay attention. You know, that's kind of what I've been saying is like pay attention and scrutinize things and come at it from a, from a, a place of, of curiosity and openness to not sort of assume that, you know, the answer or that what you read is hundred percent true. And so um, I really appreciate your perspective and um, I would love to have you back on the show and maybe have a little bit more of a long form discourse. Cause I, mm-hmm. I feel like this is, this is what's, what's more needed in our, our culture right now is these types of dialogues. So um, for people that are wanting to just learn more about you, you know, watch your videos um, and, and read some of your content, where can they go? Oh, uh, you know, Charles Eisenstein.org. Perfect. Just, yeah. Perfect. We'll have all the links and that in the bio. Charles, this is such a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for yeah, joining me on the show. Uh, for everyone that's listening, definitely go and check out Charles' work. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal, and he's got some really great insights and some phenomenal books. Uh, so go and check him out. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Thanks, Connor.